Hi, you guys. Um, I am going to be reading a book aloud to you, uh, chapter by chapter, for your weekly blogs, similar to what we were doing before when we were actually seeing each other at school um, with the book, The Jacket, that we had recently finished. And then we were also doing it for Peak. So Mrs. Adams is going to continue reading Peak to you on a podcast. Um, but we are going to be writing our weekly blogs on a new book that I found that I think you guys will enjoy. Mrs. Bartholomew actually encouraged me to read this book. It's called The White Mountains, and the author's name is John Christopher. I don't know if anyone has heard of this book before. It's part of a trilogy. Um, so for today, what I'm going to do is read a part of the preface, which is kind of like introducing you like the ideas of this new book. And then I'll read the first chapter. So then for this first week, you can use the blog summary sheet to summarize the first chapter of this book. Okay, so again, I'll, and I'll write this down in the notes part, but this book is called The White Mountains. Um, and part of the preface starts like this. So a tripod is a monstrous machine, some 60 feet high. It travels on three metal legs and has tentacles, which can reach down and sweep a boy up into an opening in the metal pod, which seems to represent its head. But is a tripod an intelligent machine or some extraordinary form of transportation? And if the latter, are these creatures inside the pod driving this weird sort of tank on stilts the way we might drive a car? At the end of the White Mountains, the reader may have his or her own guess about exactly what kind of thing a tripod is, but he or she doesn't really know. I'll let you in on a little secret. At that point, the writer didn't know either. So that's just part of the preface. So now I'm going to start reading chapter one, which is titled One Capping Day. Apart from the one in the church tower, there were five clocks in the village that kept reasonable time, and my father owned one of them. It stood on the mantelpiece in the parlor, and every night before he went to bed, he took the key from a vase and wound it up. Once a year, the clockman came from Winchester, an old jogging park horse, to clean and oil it and put it right. Afterward, he would drink chamomile tea with my mother and tell her the news of the city and what he had learned in the villages through which he had passed. My father, if he were not busy milling, would stalk out at this time with some remark about gossip. But later in the evening, I would hear my mother passing the stories on to him. He did not sh show much enthusiasm, but he listened to them. My father's great treasure, though, was not the clock, but the watch. This, a miniature clock with a dial less than an inch across and a circlet permitting it to be worn on the wrist, was kept in a locked drawer of his desk and only brought out to be worn on ceremonial occasions, like harvest festival or a capping. The clockman was only allowed to see it every third year and at such times, my father stood by, watching him as he worked. 
There was no other watch in the village, nor in any of the villages round Belt. The clockman said there were a number in Winchester, but none as fine as this. I wondered if he said it to please my father, who certainly showed pleasure in the hearing, but I believe it truly was a very good workmanship. The body of the watch was of a steel much superior to anything they could make at the forge in Elton, and the works inside were a wonder of intricacy and skill. On the front was printed, Anti-Magnetic Anchablock, which was supposed which we suppose must have been the name of the craftsman who made it in olden times. The clockman had visited us the week before, and I had been permitted to look on for a time while he cleaned and oiled the watch. The sight fascinated me, and after he had gone, I found my thoughts running continually on this treasure, now locked away again in its drawer. I was, of course, forbidden to touch my father's desk, and the notion of opening a locked door in it should have been unthinkable. Nonetheless, the idea persisted. And after a day or two, I admitted to myself that it was only the fear of being caught that prevented me. On Saturday morning, I found myself alone in the house. My father was in the mill room, grinding, and the servants, even Molly, who normally did not leave the house during the day, had been brought up in to help. My mother was out visiting old Mrs. Ash, who was sick, and would be gone an hour at least. I had finished my homework, and there was nothing to stop my going out into the bright May morning and finding Jack. But what completely filled my mind was the thought that I had this opportunity to look at the watch, with small chance of detection. The key, I had observed, was kept with the other keys in a small box beside my father's bed. There were four, and the third one opened the drawer. I took out the watch and gazed at it. It was not going, but I knew one wound it and set the hands by means of the small knob at one side. If I were to wind it only a couple of turns, it would run down quite soon, just in case my father decided to look at it later in the day. I did this and listened to its quiet, rhythmic ticking. Then I set the hands by the clock. After that, it only remained for me to slip it on my wrist. Even notched to the first hole, the leather strap was loose, but I was wearing the watch. Having achieved what I thought was an ultimate ambition, I found, as I think is often the case, that there remained something more. To wear it was a triumph, but to be seen wearing it? I had told my cousin, Jack Leeper, that I would meet him that morning in the old ruins at the end of the village. Jack, who was nearly a year older than myself and due to be presented at the next capping, was the person next to my parents that I most admired. To take the watch out of the house was to add enormity to disobedience, but having already gone so far, it was easier to contemplate it. My mind made up, I was determined to waste none of the precious time I had. I opened the front door, stuck the hand with the watch deep into my trouser pocket and ran off down the street. The village lay at a crossroads with the road in which our house stood running alongside the river, this giving power for the mill, of course, and the second road crossing it at the ford. 
Beside the ford stood a small wooden bridge for foot travelers, and I pedaled across, noticing that the river was higher than usual from the spring rains. My Aunt Lucy was approaching the bridge as I left it at the far end. She called a greeting to me, and I called back, having first taken care to veer to the other side of the road. The baker's shop was there, with trays of buns and cakes set out, and it was reasonable that I should be heading that way. I had a couple pennies in my pocket, but I ran on past it and did not slacken to a walk until I had reached the point where the houses thinned out and at last ended. The ruins were a hundred yards farther on. On one side of the road lay Spiller's Meadow, with cows grazing, but on my side there was a thorn hedge in a potato field beyond. I passed a gap in the hedge, not looking in, in my concentration on what I was going to show Jack, and was startled a moment later by a shout from behind me. I recognized the voice as Henry Parker's. Henry, like Jack, was a cousin of mine. My name is Will Parker, but unlike Jack, no friend. I had several cousins in the village. People did not usually travel far to marry. He was a month younger than I, but taller and heavier, and we had hated each other as long as I could remember. When it came to fighting, as it very often did, I was outmatched physically and had to rely on agility and quickness if I were not going to be beaten. From Jack, the first had learned some skill in wrestling, which in the past year had enabled me to hold my own more. And in our last encounter, I had thrown him heavily enough to wind him and leave him gasping for breath. But for wrestling, one needed the use of both hands. I thrust my left hand deeper into the po- into my pocket and not answering his call, ran on toward the ruins. He was closer than I had thought, though, and he pounded after me, yelling threats. I put a spurt on, looked back to see how much of a lead I had, and found myself slipping on a patch of mud. Cobbles were laid inside the village, but out here the road was in its usual poor condition, aggravated by the rains. I fought desperately to keep my footing, but would not, until it was too late, bring out my hand to help balance myself. As a result, I went slithering and sprawling and finally fell. Before I could recover, Henry was kneeling across me, holding the back of my head with his hand and pushing my face down into the mud. This activity would normally have kept him happy for some time, but he found something of greater interest. I had instinctively used both hands to protect myself as I fell and saw the watch on my wrist. In a moment, he had wrenched it off and stood up to examine it. I scrambled to my feet and made a grab, but he held it easily above his head and out of my reach. I said, panting, give that back. It's not yours, he said, it's your father's. I was in agony in case the watch had been damaged, broken maybe in my fall. But even so, I attempted to get my leg between his to drop him. He parried and stepping back said, keep your distance. He braced himself as though preparing to throw a stone or I'll see how far I can fling it. If you do, I said, you'll get a whipping for it. There was a grin on his fleshy face. So will you. And your father lays on heavier than mine does. I'll tell you what, 
I'll borrow it for a while. Maybe I'll let you have it back this afternoon or tomorrow. Someone will see you with it. He grinned again. I'll risk that. I made a grab at him. I had decided that he was bluffing about throwing it away. I almost got him off balance, but not quite. We swayed and struggled and then crashed together and rolled down into the ditch by the side of the road. There was some water in it, but we went on fighting, even after a voice challenged us from, from above. Jack, for it was he who had called to us to get up, had to come down and pull us apart by force. This was not difficult for him. He was as big as Henry, and strong also. He dragged us back up to the road, got to the root of the matter, took the watch off Henry, and dismissed him with a clip across the back of the neck. I said, tearfully, is it all right? I think so. He examined it and handed it to me. But you were a fool to bring it out. I wanted to show it to you. Not worth it, he said briefly. Anyway, we'd better see about getting it back. I'll lend a hand. Jack had always been around to lend a hand as long as I could remember. It was strange, I thought, as we walked toward the village, that in just over a week's time I would be on my own. The capping would have taken place, and Jack would be a boy no longer. Jack stood guard while I put the watch back and returned the door key to the place where I had found it. I had changed my wet and dirty trousers and shirt and we retraced our steps to the ruins. No one knew what these buildings had once been, and I think one of the things that attracted us was a sign printed on a chipped and rusted metal plate, Danger, 6,600 volts. We had no idea what volts had been, but the notion of danger, however far away and long ago, was exciting. There was more lettering, but for the most part, the rust had destroyed it. Lect City. We wondered if that were the city it had come from. Farther along was the den Jack had made. One approached it through a crumbling arch. Inside it was dry, and there was a place to build a fire. Jack had made one before coming out to look for me, and had skinned, cleaned, and skewered a rabbit ready for us to grill. There would be food and plenty at home. The midday meal on Saturday was always lavish. But this did not prevent my looking forward greedily to roast rabbit with potatoes baked in the embers of the fire, nor would it stop me doing justice to the steak pie my mother had in the oven. Although on the small side, I had a good appetite. We watched and smelled the rabbit cooking in companionable silence. We could get on very well together without much conversation, though normally I had a ready tongue. Too ready, perhaps. I knew that a lot of trouble with Henry arose because I could not avoid trying to get a rise out of him whenever possible. Jack was not much of a talker under any circumstances, but to my surprise, after a time, he broke the silence. His talk was inconsequential at first, chatter about events that had taken place in the village, but I had the feeling that he was trying to get around to something else, something more important. Then he stopped stared in silence for a second or two at the crisping carcass and said, this place will be yours after the capping. It was difficult to know what to say. I suppose if I had thought about it at all, I would have expected that he would pass the den on to me, but I had not thought about it. One did not think much about things connected with the cappings and certainly did not talk about them. 
for Jack, of all people, to do so was surprising, but what he said next was surprising still. In a way, he said, I almost hope it doesn't work. I'm not sure I wouldn't rather be a vagrant. I should say something about the vagrants. Every village generally had a few. At the time, there were four in ours, as far as I knew, but the numbers was constantly changing as some moved off and others took their place. They occasionally did a little work, but whether they did or not, the village supported them. They lived in the vagrant house, which in our case stood on the corner where the two roads crossed and was larger than all but a handful of houses, my, fa my father's being one. It could easily have accommodated a dozen vagrants, and there had been times when there had been almost that many there. Food was supplied to them. It was not luxurious, but adequate, and a servant looked after the place. Other servants were sent to lend a hand when the house filled up. What was known, though not discussed, was that the vagrants were people for whom the capping had proved a failure. They had caps, as normal people did, but they were not working properly. If this were going to happen, it usually showed, it, showed itself in the first day or two following a capping. The person who had been capped showed distress, which increased as the days went by, turning at last into a fever of the brain. In this state, they were clearly in much pain. Fortunately, the crisis did not last long. Fortunately, also, it happened only rarely. The great majority of cappings were entirely successful. I suppose only about one in 20 produced a vagrant. When he was well again, the vagrant would start his wanderings. He or she, because it happened occasionally with girls, although much more rarely, whether it was because they saw themselves as being outside the community of normal people or because the fever had left a permanent restlessness in them, I did not know. But off they would go and wander through the land, stopping a day here as long as a month there, but always moving on. Their minds certainly had been affected. None of them could settle to a train of thought for long, and many had visions and did strange things. They were taken for granted and looked after, but, like the cappings, not much talked about. Children, generally, viewed them with suspicion and avoided them. They, for their part, mostly seemed melancholy and did not talk much, even to each other. It was a great shock to hear Jack say he half wished to be a vagrant, and I did not know how to answer him. But he did not seem to need a response. He said, the watch. Do you ever think what it must have been like in the days when things like that were made? I had, from time to time, but it was another subject on which speculation was not encouraged, and Jack had never in this way before talked. I said, before the tripods? Yeah. Well, we know it was the Black Age. There were too many people and not enough food, so that people starved and fought each other and there were all kinds of sicknesses and, and things like the watch were made by men, not the tripods. We don't know that. Do you remember, he asked, four years ago when I went to stay with my Aunt Matilda? I remembered. She was his aunt, not mine, even though we were cousins. She had married a foreigner. Jack said, 
He lives at Bishopstoke on the other side of Winchester. I went out one day walking and I came to the sea. There were the ruins of a city that must have been 20 times as big as Winchester. I knew of the ruined great cities of the ancients, of course, but these two were little talked of, and then with disapproval and a shade of dread. No one would dream of going near them. It was disquieting even to think of looking at one, as Jack had done. I said, those were the cities where all the murdering and sickness were. So we are told. But I saw something there. It was the hulk of a ship, rusting away so that in places you could see right through it. It was bigger than the village, much bigger. I fell silent. I was trying to imagine it, to see it in my mind as he had seen it in reality. But my mind could not accept it. Jack said, and that was built by men, before the tripods came. Again, I was at a loss for words. In the end, I said lamely, people are happy now. Jack turned the rabbit on the spit. After a while, he said, yes, I suppose you're right. The weather stayed fine until capping day. From morning till night, people worked in the fields, cutting the grass for hay. There had been so much rain earlier that it stood high, a promise of good winter fodder. The day itself, of course, was a holiday. After breakfast, we went to church and the parson preached on the rights and duties of manhood into which Jack was to enter. Not of womanhood, because there was no girl to be capped. Jack, in fact, stood alone, dressed in the white tunic which was prescribed. I looked at him, wondering how he was feeling, but whatever his emotions were, he did not show them. Not even when the service was over, we stood out in the street in front of the church waiting for the tripod. The bells were ringing the capping peal, but apart from that, all was quiet. No one talked or whispered or smiled. It was, we knew, a great experience for everyone who had been capped. Even the vagrants came and stood in the same rapt silence. But for us children, the time lagged desperately. And for Jack, apart from everyone, in the middle of the street, I felt for the first time a shiver of fear in the realization that at the next capping, I would be standing there. I would not be alone, of course, because Henry was to be presented with me. There was not much cons consolation, consolation in that thought. At last we heard, above the clang of bells, the deep, the deep booming in the distance, and there was a kind of sigh from everyone. The blooming came nearer, and then suddenly we could see it over the roofs of the houses to the south the great hemisphere of gleaming metal rocking through the air above the three articulated legs, several times as high as the church. Its shadow came before it and fell on us when it halted. Two of its legs astride the river in the mill. We waited, and I was shivering in earnest now, unable to halt the tremors that ran through my body. Sir, Sir Geoffrey, the lord of our manor, stepped forward and made a small stiff bow in the direction of the tripod. He was an old man and could not bend much nor easily. And so one of the enormous burnished tentacles came down, gently and precisely, and its tip curled about Jack's waist, and it lifted him up, up, to where a hole opened like a mouth in the hemisphere and swallowed him. 
In the afternoon, there were games, and people moved about the village, visiting, laughing, and talking, and the young men and women who were unmarried strolled together in the fields. Then in the evening, there was a feast, with tables set up in the street since the weather had held fair, and the smell of roast beef mixing with the smells of beer and cider and lemonade and all kinds of cakes and puddings. Lamps were hung outside the houses, in the dust they would be lit, and glow like yellow blossoms along the street. But before the feast started, Jack was brought back to us. There was the distant booming first, and the quietness and waiting, and the tread of the gigantic feet shaking the earth. The tripod halted as before, and the mouth opened in the side of the hemisphere, and then the tentacles swept down and carefully set Jack by the place which had been left for him at Sir Geoffrey's right hand. I was a long way away with the children at the far end, but I could see him clearly. He looked pale, but otherwise his face did not seem any different. The difference was in his white shaved head, on which the darker metal tracery of the cap stood out like a spider's web. His hair would soon grow again over and around the metal, and with thick black hair such as he had, in a few months the cap would almost be unnoticeable but it would be there all the, all the same, a part of him now, till the day he died. This, though, was the moment of rejoicing in making merry. He was a man, and tomorrow would do a man's work and get a man's pay. They cut the choices, the choicest filet of beef and brought it to him with a frothing tankard of ale, and Sir Geoffrey toasted his health and fortune. I forgot my earlier fears and envied him, and thought how next year I would be there, a man myself. I did not see Jack the next day, but the day after that we met when, having finished my homework. I was on my way to the den. He was with four or five other men coming back from the fields. I called to him and he smiled and after a moment's hesitation, let the others go on. We stood facing each other, only a few yards from the place where, little more than a week earlier, he had separated Henry and me but things were very different. I said, how are you? It was not just a polite question. By now, if the capping were going to fail, he would be feeling the pains and discomfort that would lead in due course to his becoming a vagrant. He said, I'm fine, Will. I hesitated and blurted out, what was it like? He shook his head. You know it's not permitted to talk about that, but I can promise you that you won't be hurt. I said, but why? Why what? Why should the tripods take people away and cap them? What gate, What right have they? They do it for our good. But I don't see why it has to happen. I'd sooner stay as I am. He smiled. You can't understand now, but you will understand when it happens. It's, he shook his head. I can't describe it. Jack, I said, I've been thinking. He waited without much interest of what you said about the wonderful things that men made before the tripods. That was nonsense, he said and turned and walked onto the village. I watched him for a time and then, feeling very much alone, made my way to the den. Okay, so that is chapter one. Um, I am looking forward to reading your blogs. Crazy first chapter. Uh, please post um, and ask any questions that you may have. 
I am here throughout the week. I'm happy to answer any questions and support you along the way. Um, and that is that. Thanks, guys.